Hello and welcome to this compilation episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. I've collected three stories from earlier podcasts and, as you can see from the title of this episode, I've named them Jack Tales, which is usually the American terminology for those tales where Jack, usually an ordinary boy, or an ordinary man at least, is the hero of the story. He's usually clever, or wins out by trickery, or both. Now, you might notice that actually only one of the heroes in, this story, in these stories is named Jack, but both Jesper and the Hares and the Gifts of the Magician have a similar feel to a Jack tale. In all honesty, I feel that Jasper and the Hares really is Jack and the Hares, in my eyes anyway. You'll have to see what you think. And if you're ready, gentle listener, I'll begin. My first tale is The Cunning Thief. Or farmer who had three sons. And on the same day, the three boys went to seek their fortune. The eldest two were sensible, industrious young men. The youngest, however, didn't do much that was much use. He loved setting snares for rabbits, tracing hairs in the snow, and most of all, he loved inventing funny tricks to annoy people and then make them laugh. The three parted at the crossroads, and Jack took the one, more lonely looking. The day was rainy, and he was wet and weary and cold, and, as you can imagine, at nightfall, he was pleased to see one single house along the lonely stretch of road. The door to the house was answered by an elderly woman. What do you want? My supper and a bed, he said. You can't get it. Why can't I? The owners of this house, she said, are six wise men. They're usually out till three or four o'clock in the morning, and if they find you here, they'll skin you alive at the very least. Well, said Jack, I don't think that'll be any worse than dying in a ditch or freezing to death on the road. So, give me something to eat, if you wouldn't mind, and a bed, and I'll deal with the things in the morning. So, the lady gave him a good supper, and he tucked himself into a cosy bed. Things weren't quite so cosy the next morning, when he woke up surrounded by six large men towering over him. Who are you? said the largest of the men, and what are you here for? My name, said Jack, is Master Thief, and my business right now is to find people to work for me. If I find you any good, maybe I'll give you a few lessons. They were quite intimidated by this, and the head thief said, Well, get up and after breakfast, we'll see who's going to be the master thief and who's the journeyman. They just finished a large breakfast, and what should they see but a farmer driving a large goat to market? Will any of you, says Jack, undertake to steal that goat from the owner before he gets out of the wood, without the smallest violence to the owner or the goat? I couldn't do it, said one. I couldn't do it, said another, and they all generally agreed that they couldn't do it. So, Jack set out to prove why he was the master thief. He slipped out, went through the trees to where there was a bend in the road, and laid down his right shoe in the very middle of it. Then he ran on to another bend and put down his left shoe and went and hid himself. When the farmer saw the first shoe, he said to himself, that would be worth something if I had the other one. It's worth nothing by itself. Then he went on and came to the second shoe. What a fool I was, said the farmer to himself. I'll go back for that other shoe. So he tied the goat to a sapling in the hedge and went back through the forest to the other shoe. Jack, however, was behind the tree in the other shoe and when the man had gone round the bend, he picked up his other one, loosed the goat and led him off through the wood. Obviously, the poor farmer couldn't find the first shoe and when he came back, he couldn't find the second or, more importantly, his goat. Damn it, he said. What will I do after promising my wife to buy her a shawl? 
I'm also going to go and drive another beast to market without her knowing. I'd never hear the last of it if you found out what a fool I'd made of myself. The thieves, meanwhile, were greatly admiring of Jack and wanted him to tell them how he'd managed it. But he said, everyone has trade secrets. By and by, they see the farmer leading a big fat sheep through the wood. Oh, still that sheep, said Jack, before it's out of the wood. And no violence. The thieves agreed again that they couldn't do it. Right, said Jack, I'll do it. Who's got a good long rope? The poor farmer was jogging along and thinking of his misfortune when he saw a man hanging from the bough of a tree. Lord save us. The corpse wasn't there an hour ago. He went on about just less than a quarter of a mile and there was another corpse hanging over the road. Lord save us. Am I in my right senses? There was another turn about the same distance and just beyond it a third corpse was hanging. I'm beside myself. What would bring three hung men so near one another? I must be going mad. I'm going to go back and see if the others are still there. He tried the sheep to a sapling and back he went. But as soon as he was round the bend, down came the corpse and loosened the sheep and drove it home through the wood to the robber's house. But you can all imagine how that poor farmer felt when he could find no one dead or alive, coming or going, nor his sheep, nor the rope that fastened him. Oh no, cried he. What's my wife going to say to me now? I've lost the morning, a goat, my sheep. I'm going to have to sell something else to find the prize for the shawl. Well, that big fat bullock is in the nearest field. She won't see me taking it. The robbers had been very surprised when Jack rocked up with the sheep. And the head of the robbers said, If you do another trick like that, I'll resign the command to you. They soon saw the farmer going by again, this time driving the big fat bullock. I'll bring that fat bullock here, said Jack. No violence. The robbers all agreed again, but they couldn't do it. I'll try, said Jack, and went away into the wood. The farmer was about the spot where he found that first shoe, when he heard the bleating of a goat off to his right in the wood. He cocked his ears, and the next thing he heard was a sheep barring. There they are, he thought. There was more bleating and more marring. That's definitely them, he said, tied his bullet to a sapling that grew in the hedge, and away went into the wood. When he got near the place where the cries came from, he heard them a little bit ahead of him, and he followed them, and then a bit ahead of him, and he followed them, and then he was by about half a mile from where he tied the bullock. The cries stopped altogether. After searching and searching until he was tired, he returned for the bullock, but there wasn't a ghost of it there, nor anywhere else he searched. This time, when the robbers saw Jack and his prize coming into the household, they couldn't help shouting out, Jack must be our chief. So there was nothing but feasting and drinking and feasting and then, you know, some more drinking for the rest of the day. But before they went to bed, they showed Jack the cave where all their money was, all their disguises were in another cave, and they swore obedience to him. About a week later, when they were all at breakfast, the robbers said to Jack, Would you mind looking after the house for us today and the treasure? While we're at the fair, we haven't had a good day out at the fair for so long, you can get your turn next day. After they were gone, Jack said to the housekeeper, Do those men ever make you a present? Ah, catch them at it, she said. Of course they don't. Oh, come along with me, said Jack. I'll make you a rich woman. He took her to the treasure cave, and while she was just overawed by everything, looking at the heaps of gold and silver, Jack filled his pockets as full as they could hold, put more into a bag, and walked out. He then put on a rich, wonderful suit of clothing, took the goat, the sheep and the bullock 
and then drove them off to the farmer's house. The farmer and his wife were at the door, and when they saw the animals, they clapped their hands and laughed for joy. Do you know who these animals belong to? said Jack. Of course we do, said the farmer's wife. They're ours. I found them straying in the woods, said Jack. Is that bag with the tanginis in that's hung round the goat's neck yours as well? No, it isn't, said the couple sadly. Well, you may as well keep it. I don't want it. The couple thanked Jack profusely. They had lots of ideas what they were going to do with their ten guineas. And they had learned their lesson. The farmer would never leave animals untended in the forest again. Jack travelled on till he came to his father's house in the evening and went in. They greeted him and he asked if he could have a night's lodging. Oh, this house isn't suitable for a gentleman like you, said his father and mother. He laughed at his parents. Don't you know your own son? When they looked at him properly and they could see who it was, they were so pleased that they'd come back. Where did you get all these wonderful clothes? Oh, don't ask me that, said Jack. You might as well ask me where I got all the money. And emptied his pockets onto the table. They were really worried about where it had come from. But when he told them his adventures, they were a lot easier about it. And they all went to bed, greatly contented. Father, said Jack the next morning, go over to the squire, the landlord, and tell him I want to marry his daughter. He'll definitely set the dogs on me, said his father. That doesn't seem like a very good idea. Tell him I'm a master thief and that there's no one equal to me in the three kingdoms, that I'm worth a thousand pounds, all taken from the biggest group of robbers left unhanged. Speak to him, well, you know, make sure that his daughter's around when you tell him the story. That's a funny message you're sending me with. I don't think it's going to end well. The man came back in two hours. Oh, what did he say? Well... The lady didn't seem unwilling. I imagine it's not the first time you've spoken to her. The squire laughed and said, you'll have to steal the goose off the spit in his kitchen next Sunday, and then he might think about it. The following Sunday, after people came back from the early services, the squire and all of his people were in the kitchen, and the goose was turning before the fire. The kitchen door opened, and a miserable old beggar man with a big wallet on his back put in his head. Would the mistress have anything for me when dinner's over, Your Honour? Of course. We haven't got room for you here just now. Maybe just sit in the porch for a bit. God bless your honour's family. Soon, one of the people sitting near the window in the kitchen cried out, Sir, there's a big hare scampering around like the devil on the lawn. Will we run out and grab him? Grab a hare, indeed. Much chance you'd have. Sit where you are. The hare made his escape into the garden. But Jack, as it was Jack that was in the beggar's clothes, soon let another one out of his bag. Master, it's still there. He can't make his escape. Come on, let's chase him. The hall door's locked on the inside. Jack can't get in. Stay quiet, said the squire. In a few minutes he shouted out again. The hare was there still. It wasn't actually. It was the third one that Jack had let out of his bag. But they couldn't be kept in any longer. Everyone ran out of the house trying to grab the hare. Shall I turn the spit, Your Honour, while they're catching the hare? said the beggar. Do. Don't let him run in for your life. Oh, don't worry won't. The third hare, as expected, got away after the others, and when they all came back from the hunt, there was neither beggar nor goose in the kitchen. The squire laughed. Well, I tip my hat to you, Jack. You've got one over on me this time. While they were thinking what they could make of another dinner, a messenger came over from Jack's father to beg that the squire and the mistress and the young lady would step across the fields and take a share of what they had for dinner. There was no mean pride about the family and they walked over and got a dinner with roast turkey and roast beef and their own roast goose. The squire started laughing again. 
and Jack's nice clothes and nice manners didn't make the woman, or his proposed bride, think any the less of him. While they were taking their last drinks at their nice old oak table in the clean little parlour with a sanded floor, the squire said, You can't be sure of my daughter, Jack, just yet. If you steal away my six horses from under the six men that will be watching them tomorrow night in the stable, then I'll consider it. I do more than that, said Jack, for a pleasant look from the young lady. Monday night the six horses were in their stalls, and a man on every horse, with a good glass of whisky under every man's waistcoat, and the door was left wide open for Jack. They were merry enough for a long time, and joked and sang, and were all telling stories about how sad it was that the poor fellow wouldn't get to win the squire's daughter. But the small hours crept on, and the whisky lost its power, and they began to shiver and wish it was morning. A miserable old lady, with half a dozen bags around her, and a beard half an inch long on her chin, came to the door. Ah, then, she said, would you let me in, and allow me a wisp of straw in the corner, and life's frozen out of me. I couldn't see any harm in that, and she made herself as snug as she could. They soon saw her pull out a big black bottle from her bag, and take a drink. She coughed and smacked her lips in enjoyment, and seemed more comfortable, and the men couldn't take their eyes off that bottle. Oh, gentlemen, she said, I'd offer you a drop of this, but you might think it's a bit too forward. Forward be damned, said the one. We'll take it, and thank you. So she gave them the bottle, and they all passed it round. And the last man had manners to leave half a glass in the bottom for the old woman. They all thanked her, and said it was the best drop of whisky that ever passed their mouths. Oh, thank you, said she. It's just me that's pleased to show you how I value your kindness in giving me shelter. I'm not without another bottle, and you might pass it around while I finishes what that decent man has left me. Well... They drank out of the other bottle, and that only gave them a relish for some more. And by the time the last man had got to the bottom, the first man was dead asleep in the saddle, for the second bottle had a sleepy posset mixed with a whisky. The beggar woman lifted each man down, laid him in a manger or under the manger, all snug and warm in the straw, then drew a stocking over every horse's hoof and led them away without any noise to one of Jack's father's outhouses. The first thing the squire saw next morning was Jack riding up the avenue, five horses stepping after the one he rode. Oh, damn it, Jack, he said. And damn the numbskulls that let you out with them. He went out to the stable, and didn't the poor fellows look ashamed of themselves when they could be woken up eventually? After all, said the squire, when they were sitting at breakfast, wasn't a great thing to outwitch such idiots. I'll be riding out on the common from one till three today, and if you can steal my horse from under me, I'll say you deserve to be my son-in-law. I'd do more than that, said Jack, for my honour, if there was no love at all in the matter. And the young lady blushed and hid her face. Well, the squire kept riding about and riding about until he was tired. Still no sign of Jack. He was thinking of going home at last, and what should he see but one of his servants running from the house as if he was mad. Oh, master, he said, as far as he could be heard, run home and see if the poor mistress alive. I'm running for the doctor. She fell down two flights of stairs, and her neck, or her hips, or both, or her arms are broken, and she's speechless. Get home as fast as you can. But hadn't you better take the horse, said the squire, absolutely terrified and worried. It's a mile and a half to the doctor's. Well, whatever you like, master. I can't believe I see the day. Just stop chatting. Go. Take the horse and just go. Oh, and he ran home. He was so worried. Absolutely panicked. And he flew into the hall, and then looked around, and... There was no noise and no fuss and no bother. And he went into the parlour 
and his daughter and his wife were there, and they just looked at him as if to say, Have you run mad? The squire caught his breath, and when he could speak, said, What's this? Aren't you hurt? Didn't you fall down the stairs? What's happened? Nothing's happened, said his wife and child, since she rode out. What did you do with the horse? Well, no one could describe the state he was in for about a quarter of an hour. It was during the joy that his wife was unhurt, and how angry he was with Jack, and so annoyed with being tricked. He saw the beast coming up the avenue, with Jack in the stable, with his feet in the stirrup leathers. The servant, sensibly, did not make an appearance for about a week. What did he care? He had ten golden guineas from Jack. That was horrible, said the squire. I never quite forgive you for the shock you gave me. But then I've been so happy ever since that I think I'll give you just one more go. And if you take away the sheep from under my wife and myself tonight, the marriage can take place tomorrow. Well, I'll try, said Jack. But if you keep my bride from me any longer, I'll steal her away as if even if she was minded by fiery dragons. I mean, this was a little bit over the top, but he was getting quite annoyed by now. That night, when the squire and his wife were in bed, and the moon was shining in through the window, he saw a head rising over the sill to have a peep, and then bobbing back down again. That's Jack, said the squire. I'll astonish him a bit. And he pointed his gun at the lower pane. My dear, said his wife, surely you wouldn't shoot the brave fellow. Oh, I would do that, said the squire. There's nothing but powder in it. Up went the head, bang went the gun, down dropped the body, and a great huge bang was heard on the gravel walk. Oh no, said the lady, poor Jack's killed or disabled for life. I hope not, said the squire, and down the stairs he ran. He didn't shut the door, but opened the gate and ran into the garden. His wife heard his voice at the room door before he could be under the window and back as she thought. Wife, he said from the door, the sheet, the sheet. He's not killed, I hope, but he's bleeding like a pig. I must wipe it away as well as I can and get someone to carry him in with me. She pulled it off the bed and threw it to him. Down he ran like lightning, and he had hardly time to be in the garden when he was back, and this time he came back in his shirt as he went out. Oh, damn it, said Jack, he said, for an arrant rogue. Arrant rogue, she said. Isn't the poor fellow all cut and bruised? I wouldn't care if he was. What do you think was bobbing up and down at the window and thrown down so heavy onto the pavement? A man's clothes stuffed with straw and a couple of stones. What did you want with a sheet then, just now, to wipe his blood if he's only a man of straw? Didn't ask for a sheet. Well, whether you wanted it or not, I threw it to you, and you were standing outside the door. Oh, Jack, said the squire, there's no use trying to outwit you. We'll have to do without a sheet for one night. We'll have the marriage tomorrow to get ourselves out of trouble. So, married they were, and Jack turned out to be a very good husband. And the squire and his lady were never tired of praising their son-in-law, the cunning thief. Our next tale is Jesper and the Hares. There was once a king who ruled over a kingdom somewhere between sunrise and sunset. It was as small as kingdoms usually were in the olden days, and when the king went up to the roof of his palace, he could see the end of it in all directions. But as it was his own, he was very proud of it, and he wondered what would happen to it without him. He had only one child, a daughter. Sadly, as was the way of things then, he didn't feel that she could rule alone, so would need to be provided with a husband. This husband would need to be fit to be a king after him. What kept him up at night was he needed to be rich enough, and more importantly clever enough, to be a suitable match for the princess. At long last he came up with a plan. He made a proclamation across all of his kingdom, and asked his neighbours if they would publish it as well. 
the proclamation was as follows. Whoever bought him 12 of the most beautiful pearls he had ever seen and could perform the task that the king set him would be married to his daughter, the princess, and eventually become king. He thought he had all of his bases covered because only a very rich man would be able to bring the pearls and the task would show that he had his wits about him. There were lots who tried to fulfil the conditions. Rich merchants and foreign princes presented themselves one after the other so that on some days it was really quite annoying. But although all of them could produce the most beautiful pearls, not one among them could complete even the simplest task that was set them. On the other hand, there were also some adventurers that turned up. They probably could have completed the tasks, or at least had a good go, but sadly they tried to convince the king that the pearls they brought with them were real, and he wasn't that easily deceived. As the pearls were a really big part of the condition, they were sent about their way. The stream of suitors slowed almost to a stop over the next few weeks, and still there was no prospect of a suitable son-in-law. Now, as it happened, in a corner of the king's dominions, which, as we've already spoken about, wasn't really that far from the palace, there was a fisherman who had three sons, Peter, Paul and Jasper. The two elder brothers were much bigger and stronger than the younger, but Jasper was definitely the cleverest of the three, although in the way of big brothers, neither Peter or Paul will admit this. One day, the fisherman went out in his boat, and as part of his actually very successful catch for him that day, he came back with three dozen huge oysters. When these oysters were opened, each one was found to contain the most beautiful pearl. After quite a lot of rows and even more shouting, it was decided that each of the boys would pick pearls by lot, and they would get their chance in order of age. The rows would have gone on even longer, but the fisherman had had to put his foot down. Obviously, if the eldest was successful, the other two would be saved the trouble of trying. So, bright and early next day, Peter packed up his pearls into a small basket and headed off towards the palace. He hadn't gone very far along his way when he came across the king of the ants and the king of the beetles, who were facing each other preparing for battle with their armies behind them. Come and help me, said the king of the ants. The beetles are too big for us, and I may help you one day in return. Peter who was never very helpful, said unfortunately he didn't have time to help people and they'd have to get on with it without him, the best they could. So he travelled further along the path and then met an old lady. You're up early, said the old lady. What have you got in your basket? Obviously that is a little bit inquisitive, but Peter was really rather unforgivably rude. Cinders, he said, and pushed past her and carried on along the way to the palace. Very well, cinders be it, said the old woman, calling after him, but Peter pretended not to hear. As we've discussed before, the kingdom wasn't really that big, so Peter reached the palace very soon after this. He was brought before the king, and the king and the court and everybody marvelled over the beauty of the pearls. But then, a strange thing started to happen. The pearls began to lose their whiteness and grew dim, and their gleam completely disappeared. Then at last they grew blacker and blacker, until all that remained in the basket was a heap of cinders. Peter was so amazed he didn't know what to say for himself, but the king had plenty to say for both of them, and Peter was glad enough to run away back to his father's house. Now I bet some of you are thinking he really brought this upon himself, and who am I to argue? Now, Peter wasn't going to admit what had happened. He just told everyone it was a failure, and that Paul would have to try the next day. He was really miffed, though. Paul was convinced he would do a better job, and the next day he set out for the palace with his pearls in another little basket. 
he soon came across the king of the ants and the king of the beetles. We had a really bad time of it yesterday, said the king of the ants. Please won't you help me? I may help you some day in return. Paul was, if possible, even ruder than his brother to the king of the ants. I just don't have time, he said, to help other people with their problems. You carry on and do what you have to do. He walked on, and strangely, met the same old lady as yesterday. Good morning, she said. What have you got in your basket? Cinders, he said very rudely, and pushed past the lady to get further on the path. The old lady was really cross at his lack of manners, and shouted after him, Well, cinders be it. Paul pretended he didn't hear her. You will not be surprised to hear that the same thing happened to Paul in the presence of the king as had happened to Peter. If anything, he ran away even faster back home. He was even sulkier than Peter had been and was frankly difficult to live with. So it was finally Jasper's turn and on the third day he packed his little basket with the pearls, had his breakfast, listening to his brothers making rude comments and telling him I definitely couldn't be able to do it if they couldn't do it. Jasper sensibly didn't say anything and just set off for the palace. As he walked, he came across the king and the ants and the king of the beetles, marshalling their forces for a third day of fighting. The ants were significantly reduced in numbers, and it really didn't look as though they'd be able to hold out the day. Please come and help us, said the king of the ants to Jesper. Or we'll be completely defeated. I may be able to help you in return some day. Now Jesper, who really wasn't very keen on beetles, having had to brush them out of the hut one too many times, but he'd heard really good things about ants. They were industrious and got things done. So he decided to help the ants and charged onto the battlefield. Now obviously he was much bigger than the beetles and when they saw his great galumphing feet heading for them, they ran away. The ones he hadn't squashed already, that was. The king of the ants was thrilled and he made the most eloquent speech, which is unusual for an ant, really. And it made Jasper smile. But he hid it from the ants as he didn't want them to think he was mocking them. The king of the ants went on to say, Just call on me at any time. If I can help you, I'll be there. Jasper didn't really think the ants would ever be able to help him, but he didn't wish to be unkind, so he just nodded to the king and accepted his thanks. Jasper continued on his journey, and, you'll be unsurprised to hear, the old lady came out of the bushes as he walked past. Good morning, she said. What have you got in your basket? Jasper, who had much better manners than his brother, turned to the woman and said, look, pearls, opening his basket to show her. I'm off to the palace to see if I can marry the princess. Those are just beautiful, said the woman. Unfortunately, they won't go very far towards winning the princess if you can't complete the task that is set for you. However, she said, I see you've brought something with you to eat. Why don't you give that to me? You'll get a good dinner at the palace. Jasper hadn't thought of this, so cheerfully handed over his lunch even though they were his favourite cheese and onion sandwiches. He'd already headed on a few more steps when the old lady called him back. Here, she said, have this in exchange for your lunch. Handing him an old, slightly battered whistle. It isn't much to look at, she said. But if you blow it, anything that's been taken from you or that you've lost will return to you instantly. Jasper, remembering his manners, thanked her for the whistle and walked on to the palace. He couldn't really see what good it would do him right now, but he popped it in his pocket anyway. He got to the palace and was presented to the king, showed him the wonderful pearls which he loved, as did the rest of the court, there were deep sighs of wonder at their beauty. That, however, is when things definitely started to go wrong. The king did not really want the son of a fisherman to marry his daughter. He'd had his hopes pinned on a prince and the fisherman's son. 
just didn't cut it as far as he was concerned. He told the Queen this, who agreed. Don't worry, she said. You can always set him completely impossible tasks that he's sure to fail. You're quite right, said the King. Hadn't even thought of that. It's been all the bustle round here lately. It's making me forget myself. So, that evening, all unaware, Jesper dined with the King and the courtiers and the other nobles on the most magnificent dinner he had ever eaten. Although, it didn't really take that much to impress him. Cheese and onion sandwiches were his favourite, after all. He was then given a grand bedroom, much grander than he'd ever seen. Unfortunately, both the dinner and the bedroom were very counterproductive. He couldn't sleep. He'd eaten far too much rich food and didn't know what to make of the bedroom. He was also getting quite nervous about what the task might be tomorrow, so didn't actually sleep a wink, even though the bed was the most comfortable one he'd ever sat on. Morning came at last, and after breakfast, the king took him to show him the first of his tasks. The king led him out to the barn, where there was a huge pile of grain in the middle of the floor. Sort those, he said, into barley, oats and rye. You have until sunset today to complete the task, otherwise you must give up any hope of marrying the princess. He walked away, locking the door. The clunking sound of the lock seemed very loud in the now very quiet room. He was in despair. He knew there was absolutely no way he was going to be able to manage this. But he did walk over to the heap and at least try to separate out of the grains. But it was truly impossible without help and he wasn't allowed any help. Well, help that could get in through the door anyway. Suddenly, he remembered. A creature that he'd helped that probably could get under the door. He called out. Please, King of the Ants, you know you said you'd help me. Well, now I really need you to help me. Before long, his Ant Majesty appeared. Hello. Jesper explained his problem. Is that all? said his Majesty. Don't trouble yourself about that. That's a simple problem to solve. At his royal signal, an army of ants descended on the barn. As his Ant Majesty was a kind man, I'm assuming it probably wasn't the ones that had been in the battle the day before. Jasper sat and watched the ants, sorting the three grains into three piles. But the movements of the ants was mesmerising, and as he'd had no sleep the night before, he curled up in the corner of the barn and had a snooze. When he awoke, it was to see that sunset had come and the king was in the barn. He was marvelling that Jasper had had time to sort the piles and had even found time for a snooze. The king was a bit annoyed that Jasper had actually managed to complete the task, but he wasn't too worried. He'd got an even harder task for the next day. Jasper was, was in agreement with the king that the task was even harder. Have you ever heard the phrase herding cats? Well, the task that Jasper had was nearly as bad. Cats at least being relied upon to have a sleep occasionally. Jasper's task was herding. The king had rounded up, or rather his servants had rounded up a hundred hares in a big cage on wheels and they had taken it to a field to which they had brought Jasper. If any of these hundred hares escape, then you lose any chance for the princess, said the king, not even hiding his glee as he opened the cage door and the hares scampered out. The hares went everywhere. They definitely didn't stay in the field. Some of them were gone in the blink of an eye. The king looked around at the hares, or what was left of them, smirked and walked away, just leaving a servant behind a bush just to keep an eye on things, just in case. 
Now, Jasper thought this was definitely worse than the grains. He had absolutely no idea what to do. There was absolutely no point trying to chase just one of the hares, which would be miles away by now. He still wouldn't have all of the other hares. He stood there, looking up at the sky, shoved his hands deep in his pockets, desperately trying to think if he knew of any way to catch the hares, or any other solution to the problem. He suddenly felt something hard against his hand and pulled it out of his pocket. It was the whistle that the lady had given him on his route to the palace. He didn't imagine it would really work, but, you know, but he thought it was worth a try. He wouldn't be any worse off. And it worked. Suddenly, instead of hares running away, he found hares bounding towards him. There were hares everywhere. The whole field was full of hares. Eventually, they sort of settled around him in a big circle, in a somewhat expectant fashion. The servant, who was behind a bush, who would have been hoping for a quiet afternoon, roughly having a bit of a laugh at a man trying to catch hares, suddenly realised that it probably was his duty to go back to the palace and tell the king what was going on. The king didn't really know what to do, so he headed off to his wife to tell her the news. She was generally much better at plans than he was. While Jasper was sitting in the field, surrounded by hares, really wondering what he was going to do next and whether anyone would bring him any lunch, a girl appeared. She was dressed quite shabbily in the peasant dress of the country. She looked at him, surrounded by hares, and said, I wonder if you can help me, especially since you seem to have so many hares. Visitors have turned up for dinner, and we really don't have anything to feed them, mostly because we're very poor, but also because, as I said, they were unexpected. Is there any chance you could give me one of your hares? Jasper had to say no, unfortunately. They weren't really his hares to give away. But the girl asked lots of times, and she did seem very desperate. A lot depends on me having all of these hares, he said. So I definitely couldn't let you have them for free. But she begged again, and and this isn't a very good reflection of his character, but as she was a very pretty girl, Jesper agreed that she could have one for a peck on the cheek. She didn't seem very thrilled with this method of payment, but did go ahead, pecked Jesper on the cheek, took a hair, and walked away. Jesper sat and waited about five minutes, and then blew on his whistle. The hair wriggled away from the girl, who was further away than you'd have thought by now, and bounded back to the field. Jasper had all his hairs again. Time carried on. Jasper was still wondering if anyone would bring him some lunch. And then, an older lady appeared. She also seemed to have unexpected guests for dinner. She wondered if Jasper could let her have two of the hairs. He was very reluctant. As he explained to the lady, a lot depended on him having all of the hairs at the evening. She was, however, quite insistent. So he agreed she could have one if she would walk around him in a circle, cackling like a hen and looking up at the sky as she walked. The lady was not inclined to do this, but as Jasper said, she's the one that wanted the hair. So she agreed to do it, muttering to herself about what her neighbours would say if they saw her. She circled Jasper, cackling like a hen. Well, not particularly well, but she gave it a try, looking up the sky. Jasper handed over two hairs when she'd finished, even though, to be quite honest, the cackling really wasn't very good. She seemed strangely pleased with herself and walked out away from the field, holding onto her hairs by the ears, which I don't think is actually a very kind way to carry them. Jasper left it ten minutes this time and then blew on his whistle. The two hairs with a woman 
did a huge wriggling leap and bounded back to the fields in Jesper. So her substandard cackling had been in vain. Jesper carried on waiting. He did feel like sunset was a long way away and he was still waiting on that lunch. He was starting to despair of it though, to be honest. He was hoping that maybe they'd give him some dinner when he got back to the palace. At that moment in his musings, a rather stout man appeared in the corner of the field, heading towards Jesper and the hares. The man requested one of the hares. He didn't mention it was for dinner, but he didn't really see any other thing you could do with a hare, to be honest. The man asked and asked and asked and asked Jesper for a hare. In the end, Jesper gave in. However, he said to the man, if you're going to have one of my hairs, then I really need you to do something for me first. The man looked a little bit suspicious. What exactly do you want me to do? Well, said Jesper, I'm going to need you to stand on your head and then waggle your legs in the air. What? I'm not doing that. Well, said Jesper, he wasn't one that wants the hair. The man seemed really unhappy about it and he offered money instead. But Jesper said no, it was standing on his head, wiggling his feet around in the air, or nothing. Eventually it dawned on the man that it was that or nothing, and that Jesper was serious, so he had, well, let's be honest, if not very kind, it took him at least five goes to do it. And he wasn't spectacularly good at it when he did do it, but Jesper said fine, he'd done it, and he could have the hair. The man took off, practically running from the field. And Jesper, well, he waited well, 15 minutes this time before he blew his whistle. The hare did a big jump and a wriggle, escaped from the man and bounded back to the field, just like the others before him. Nothing else happened for the rest of the long afternoon. No one did bring him any lunch. He was starting to think he might be better off at the fisherman's hut, or at least he got his favourite cheese and onion. But eventually sunset fell and the king arrived. Clearly, really not very happy. He made Jesper count every single one of those hairs back into the cage and then he opened the door and let them all go again saying to Jasper well I suppose you've completed your task. Jasper got to stay in the palace for another night he did at least get his dinner which he was thrilled about and then he got to sleep in the big bed this time he did sleep so it wasn't completely wasted on him. The next morning the king had called the whole court to the big throne room which he didn't use very often, but thought this was the perfect setting for his last and final task. He was really pleased with himself. He thought there's absolutely no way that Jesper was going to be able to get the better of him over this one. Jesper stood there whilst a big tub was brought in and placed in front of the king. Now, said the king, you must tell us as many undoubted truths as will fill up that tub, or you won't be marrying the princess. But how are we to know when the tub is full? said Jesper. Don't you worry about that, said the king in a smug fashion. That's my business. Now everyone else thought this seemed really unfair, but sadly as we know life isn't fair and equally no one wants to be the first person to say anything about it. No one wants to deal with a grumpy king. So Jesper put a brave face on it and began his story. Yesterday when I was herding hares, a very pretty girl came to me in a peasant dress and begged me for a hair. She got the hair, but she had to give me a kiss for it. My first undoubted truth is that that girl was the princess. He looked towards her, and she had to admit that it was the truth. Although she did look rather uncomfortable. That hasn't filled much of the tub, said the king, looking unimpressed, but secretly feeling quite cross inside. Jesper began again. 
After that, he said, an older woman came and begged me for two hairs, saying that she needed them desperately for dinner. I did give her the hairs, but only after I'd made her circle round me cackling like a hen and looking up at the sky. So, here's my second undoubted truth. That woman was the Queen. The Queen turned red and looked very embarrassed, but she couldn't deny it. Hmm, said the King. That is interesting. But the tub isn't full yet. He whispered to the Queen. I didn't think you were such a fool. Well, what did you do for the hair? She whispered in return. Jesper continued his story. Finally, he said, in the big queue of people that seemed to want hairs yesterday afternoon, there came along a stout older fellow. He was very dignified and proud, but in order to get the hair, he stood on his head and waggled his feet in the air, even if it did take him five times before he could do it properly. Jesper said a little unkindly, although this was not normally part of his character, but he was getting quite grumpy by this stage. Anyway, my third undoubted truth is that that old fellow was the Stop, stop, shouted the king. You didn't say another word. The tub is full. The whole court applauded and the king and queen accepted Jesper as their son-in-law. And, much more importantly, the princess, who was starting to really like Jesper by this stage, also accepted him. His cleverness being much more important than his handsomeness. Although, that didn't hurt. Anyway, when the king got time to think about it, he's quite convinced the kingdom would be safe in Jesper's hands. Especially if he looked after the people as well as he'd herded the hares. And that. Our next tale is Gifts of the Magician. Once upon a time, there was a boy who lived in a forest with his father, in a small hut at the edge of the woods. His mother had died sadly some years before. Near their hut was a group of birch trees in which some pigeons had made their nests, and the young lad had often begged his father's permission to shoot them for target practice, but unfortunately his father always forbade them to do anything of the kind, and that's definitely a story for another time. One day, however, when the father had gone some distance away to collect wood for the fire, the boy could stand it no longer, the temptation was just too much, and he took out his bow and arrow and he shot one of the pigeons. Now either his skill was not what he thought, or the bird was faster than he thought, but unfortunately he just managed to wing the bird. Now the boy was not intrinsically bad, he was just 16, a little arrogant, and he did not want the bird to be damaged and have to live in pain, so he ran after it. But although he seemed to run very fast, and the bird seemed to run very slowly along the ground, somehow he just couldn't catch it. And they went deeper and deeper and deeper into the wood until he looked around and darkness had fallen and he couldn't see the way home and he was cold and the bird had completely disappeared. He tried to follow the path along which he had come, but somehow it was always branching off into unexpected directions and he looked about for a house where he might stop and ask his way or even a shelter, but there wasn't a sign of one anywhere. And he was afraid to stand still for it was so cold and there were many stories of walls being unseen in that part of the forest. Night had completely fallen by this time and the forest was very dark and every noise made the boy start because he was starting to get very, very frightened. He didn't know if he'd survive the night. But then suddenly a man appeared. There was a huge amount of noise behind him and he realised the man was being chased by wolves. The head of the pack was right up behind him and all of the courage suddenly returned to the boy. He took his bow and arrow and he shot the wolf. And whether it was a lucky shot or his skill had come back to him, he suddenly realised he'd taken it out. And then he scattered some more arrows at the other wolves. They all ran away, frightened, especially after what happened to the leader of the pack. 
The magician, for it was a magician, was really appreciative, and he promised him a reward if he would come back to his house. Indeed, there is nothing that would be more welcome to me than a night's lodging, answered the boy. I've been wandering all day in the forest, and I didn't know how to get home again. Come with me, you must be hungry as well as tired, said the magician, and led the way to his house, where the boy flung himself on a bed and went fast asleep. It had been a long day, and he's a sixteen-year-old boy, and sixteen-year-old boys love to sleep. The magician then returned to the forest to hunt for food, as the larder was empty. Magicians not being very good at keeping their larder stocked, being mostly concerned with magic. Whilst the magician was gone, the housekeeper, who sadly hadn't been doing very much in the way of housekeeping, tried to wake up the boy. She shook him and shook him. She wanted to tell him what terrible danger he was in. Unfortunately, the boy could not be woken. Probably something to do with being a teenager. But she tried and she tried, but in the end had to give up. We didn't even awaken when the magician returned with food for the pot, and indeed slept through another whole day. Indeed, he did not awaken until the magician had gone back out for more supplies. This time, the housekeeper was able to talk to him, but knew he was safe because he'd saved the magician's life. She told him, he's going to offer you a reward, which obviously the boy was very excited about, but she said, you must, must ask for the right reward. He has so many things he could give you, but what you need to ask him for is for the horse in the fourth stall in his stables. Can you remember that? The horse and the four stall in the stables. The magician then returned and they all sat round for their meal, enjoying what he'd managed to catch in the forest that day. After the meal, the magician turned to the boy and he said, you've saved my life. As you've saved my life, I want to give you a reward. What would you like? The boy remembered the housekeeper's advice and he said, I would like the horse in the fourth stall in the stable. The magician was a little bit suspicious about this. But he said, well, that's, that's my best horse. Is there anything else you'd like instead? But the boy was very specific and he said, no, that's definitely what I'd like. The horse in the fourth stall in the stable. The magician was a very good sport. And because he'd said he could have anything, he gave the boy the horse from the fourth stall in the stable. And he also gave him a zither, a fiddle and a flute. The magician told him that if he was ever in danger, he should play on the zither. And if no help came, then he should play on the fiddle. And if no help came, he would play on the flute. The boy remembered his manners and thanked the magician, strapped all of his instruments about him and climbed on the horse and rode off. He had only gone a couple of miles when suddenly the horse spoke to him. This was a huge shock, as you can imagine. It's not often you encounter a talking horse. Although you think perhaps he might have guessed something strange about it, due to the fact it had come from a magician's house and it was his favourite horse. The horse suggested it's probably not a good idea to go home to his dad just at the moment. A shooting the pigeon is what had started all of the problems. Let's visit a few towns first and something lucky will be sure to happen to us. The boy, who at age 16 thought he really was a man by now, thought he should see the world. So they carried on. And carried on through some villages, through some towns, and eventually got to the capital city of the country they were in. Everyone loved the horse. They stopped to admire it. They wanted to just talk to the horse. They didn't realise the horse could talk back and obviously it didn't to everyone. But they stroked the horse. They loved the horse. Thought the horse was the most beautiful horse in all of the world. And eventually this came to the knowledge of the king and he came to see the horse himself. He told the boy he would give him as much money and no matter how much it was for the horse. There was no limit to his budget. The boy wasn't very sure because he'd come to enjoy having the horse. But it did seem very tempting to have so much money afterwards, even if it meant he didn't have a horse. However, he didn't actually have to make such a terrible decision because before he could speak, the horse managed to whisper to him, don't sell me. Ask the horse to take me to his stable and feed me there, and his other horses to become just as beautiful as me. I was thrilled with this. They took the horse off to the stable. 
No sooner had he taken two or three bites in the manger, when looked around at all the other horses in the stable, suddenly looked young and beautiful. Many of these horses were old favourites of the king that he'd ridden to wars, and they were tired and old, but now they looked as they had when he'd first ridden them out to victory. The king was absolutely thrilled, and he told the boy that he could stay, and the horse would always have room in his stable. The boy was really happy, because he hadn't really known what he was going to do after his triumph with the horse transformations. However, not everyone was as happy as the king and the boy. The man who ran the stables, we'll call him the stable manager, was not happy. He was really, really envious of the boy and his skill. So he was constantly going to the king and telling him stories about what the boy had done. The king mostly ignored it, understanding that it was just coming from a point of jealousy from the stable manager. One day, however, he told a story to the king. He said that the boy had boasted that he could get the king's war horse back, who had disappeared into the forest some years ago. The king loved that horse and he'd never stopped mourning for him. So eventually he just believed the stable manager and called the young man to him. Find me my horse in three days, said the king, or it'll be the worse for you. The lad was really thunderstruck. He didn't understand what had happened, but he bowed to the king and went off at once to the stable. His horse comforted him and told him not to worry. Just ask the king to give you a hundred oxen, he said, and let them be killed and cut into small pieces. Then we will start on our journey. As they travelled, the horse told him, soon we will reach a certain river. There a horse will come up to you, but take no notice of him. Soon another will appear, and this also you must leave alone. But when the third horse shows itself, throw my bridle over it. Everything happened just as the horse had suggested, and the third horse was safely bridled, and they were on their journey back to the king. The horse warned, The magician's raven will try to eat us as we ride away. If you throw back some flesh behind us as we ride, it will stop to eat us, and I can gallop like the wind and get us out of his clutches. Sensibly, the boy did what he was told, and it happened exactly as the horse had foretold. The stable manager was even more jealous when the horse was brought back to the king. He eventually thought of a plan and told the king that the youth had boasted that he could bring home the queen who had disappeared some months ago into the forest. So again, the king called the young lad to him and said, I've heard that you can find my queen. If you don't bring her back within three days, then your head will be forfeit. The lad was even more thunderstruck than before, but again he bowed and returned to the stable. He thought he might as well drop dead on the spot, because how could he find the queen when no one in the stables or the castle or anywhere in the country had been able to find her? He told the horse all of his worries. That's not a problem, said the horse. All you've got to do is run me back to the same river we were at before, and I will plunge into it and take my proper shape again. For I am the king's wife who was turned into a horse by the magician, from whom you rescued me. All happened as the horse stroke queen had said, and the most beautiful woman emerged from the river. Thankfully, the boy had the forethought to bring two spare horses with him, and they both rode back to the palace. The king was overjoyed and heaped presents and thank yous on the boy. You'd think, after all of this excitement, that that would be it for the boy, and all would be well. Unfortunately, you'd be wrong. The stable manager was even more jealous, and he was determined to end the boy's life. He left it some time, but as soon as the newness and wonderfulness of the queen's return had worn off, he went to the king and told him that he'd heard a conspiracy that the boy was trying to take over his throne and had turned all his nobles against him. The king, who you'd think would know better after all of this time and all the things that happened, was furious. He believed the stable manager again and called the boy into his presence. He told the boy that he had heard all about his dastardly plans and that he would be hanged in the morning. The boy spent a night in a jail cell. He didn't sleep, obviously he was terrified and was so, so distraught and thought it was so unfair when he'd done absolutely nothing. And he just kept fretting and thinking and fretting and thinking and crying just a little bit. And then fretting and thinking. And then suddenly he remembered. The horse was not the only thing that he had carried away from the magician's house. 
He eventually managed to get some sleep. And the next morning, he was led to the gallows. He was a little bit overawed. Everyone was there, the whole of the court, and as many people of the capital city could squeeze into the courtyard around the gallows. We mustn't judge them. This was a much darker time, and there was very little in the way of entertainment. As he stood on the gallows, he looked towards the king and asked if he could have a favour. The king, who had calmed down just a touch by then, but not enough that he would stop the hanging, agreed that he could have a favour, as long as it didn't take too long. The boy asked if he could have his zither and play one final tune before his death. The king could see nothing wrong with this, and so the boy's zither was brought to him, and he started to play, and he played, and he played, and everyone in the courtyard started dancing and laughing and dancing, and they couldn't seem to stop. The more the zither played, the more they carried on dancing, until suddenly it was night time, and the hanging couldn't go ahead, because everyone had been dancing, including the hangman, and was absolutely exhausted. So the boy was returned to his cell. He was a bit concerned because no help had come from his first attempt, but he did not despair, as he wasn't hanged yet. The second day went pretty much the same as the last, only this time he played the fiddle, and if anything, people danced even harder than the day before. The boy was again returned to his cell, but this time the king was determined that the boy would not survive the next day. At dawn, the boy mounted the gallows again. He asked for another favour. The king was reluctant but seeing all his people around him and not wanting to look like the tyrant that he actually was, he agreed that it could happen. But he asked for some time and he got himself tied to the tree so that no matter what happened, he wouldn't dance and he could carry out the sentence if necessary. The boy started to play the flute and the dancing started again with, if possible, even more vigour and passion than the day before. The king rubbed his back raw against the tree as he tried to escape his bonds and still carried on dancing. The boy carried on playing desperately He knew he wouldn't survive another night if help didn't come. But at that moment, the magician honoured his word and appeared, if a little overdramatically, in a puff of smoke and a swirl of his cloak. What danger are you in, my son, that you sent for me? He said, they want to hang me. The gallows are all ready and the hangman's only waiting for me to stop playing. I'll put that right, said the magician. And he tore up the gallows and threw them so high into the air that no one knows where they came down. Who ordered this hanging? The boy pointed wordlessly at the king, who was still tied to the tree, and without wasting any words, which is unusual for him, the magician took hold of the tree in such a huge heave into the air that the tree and the man were never seen again. The boy was released instantly, and, as he'd been so resourceful to have managed to find the king's horse and the king's wife when the king had easily lost both of them, it was decided that he would make a good king. The boy accepted the job. I mean, who doesn't want to be king? However, he did make sure to keep the queen very close by, as she clearly knew lots more about ruling than he did, and was definitely wiser than he was, as she had been the reason that he'd managed to both find the horse and herself. The stable manager had very sensibly disappeared, and no one bothered to try and find him. As everyone knows, that whoever has a mind taken to wickedness is sure to end badly. And that, gentle listener, is the end of the tales for today. And I hope you enjoyed them, for they had no other purpose. And I hope you'll listen next week to another compendium episode of folklore, food and fairy tales.